The podcasts in this series are all concerned with diplomacy at the Ottoman court in the 16th and early 17th centuries. They arise from a workshop that was funded by the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Award, and the activities funded by this award all looked at diplomatic practices and conventions in specific courts from a range of different disciplinary angles. These podcasts reflect the fact that studies of early modern diplomacy have changed significantly over the last two decades. Once the history of diplomacy was a heavily bureaucratic subject that prioritized the study of war and the formulation and execution of foreign policy. But now we're much more interested in looking at how diplomacy was conducted on a day-to-day -day basis and the ways in which we, what we call soft power impacted upon negotiations. As a result, we now appreciate the importance of individual diplomats and the ways in which they could impact on the success or failure of a mission. Looking at the agency of particular diplomats emphasizes the role that social factors played in international relations. David Dopasso's study of Ottoman diplomats in 18th century Vienna, for instance, has suggested that it was important for diplomats to acquire a degree of cultural and social familiarity with the people and conventions of their host courts. A diplomat's efficacy was affected by a range of factors, such as who he met with, which networks he cultivated at court, who supported him at home, and how well he could represent his and his monarch's honor. Focusing on the activities of an individual diplomat or group of diplomats can therefore help us to appreciate why some negotiations were successful while others were not. Lower levels of diplomats were important too, translators, interpreters, spies, and so on. These were the men who helped to serve as diplomatic relationships, and such figures also feature very strongly in current scholarship on early modern diplomacy. But in the end, it was rulers and their accredited representatives who ultimately determined the nature of the relationship between the two polities. And it is on these higher level figures that these podcasts focus. Another important trend in current scholarship is the recognition that the ceremonies involved in diplomacy were integral to its function. While we may read accounts of ambassadors coming to blows over who sat where during a royal marriage, or who descended and who ascended how many steps when a diplomat was being met at court, such issues did really matter to the early modern international community. Ritual, rank and honour ordered political society. Ceremonies at one level reflected the relationship between politicians, including monarchs. But as a result, any deviation from the accepted norm effectively changed that relationship. No wonder then that considerable attention was paid to diplomatic ceremonies by contemporary observers, who used such observations to try to understand the state of relations between polities, or that the ambassadors who participated in such ceremonies defended what they perceived to be their correct place in the ritual order. To do anything else, might be to accept a demotion or a front towards one's monarch. The recent cultural turn has led to an increased appreciation of the potential of diplomacy to act as a locus of cultural exchange. At one level, this is self-evident. During diplomatic relationships, the monarchs involved often exchanged gifts with one another and gave further gifts to ambassadors who departed their courts to thank them for their service. These could range from low-level gifts, such as homemade jam, to priceless religious relics, to items of exquisite craftsmanship and unimaginable expense. 
Many ambassadors also had artists or mu musicians in their entourage, which created multiple opportunities for cultural exchanges, and many others bought antiquities, art and books, and moved them across borders. And the social aspect of diplomacy meant that diplomats attended an array of court entertainments, thereby experiencing new art forms such as ballet and opera. But there was also a deeper level of cultural exchange involved in diplomatic encounters, as the very processes of diplomacy by their nature involved sharing concepts about how politics could work. As Christian Vindler's work has shown, diplomats learned about the norms of their host court through a series of interactions. These were not just the official meetings between the ambassador and the ruler to whom he had been sent, but also the discussions about protocol that preceded such audiences, and incidentally, any misunderstandings about procedure that had to be debated along the way. Through repeated interactions, both sides gradually forged a shared understanding of the correct diplomatic processes at that particular court. This did not mean that a diplomat arriving at a court with a very different normative system from his own native court would necessarily experience a clash of cultures, rather that the processes by which cultural knowledge about politics was exchanged were more ingrained than scholars had previously thought. Perhaps just as importantly, all diplomatic encounters were to some extent cross-cultural, not just those between polities that were very obviously different. It could be just as bewildering for a French royal representative to visit a Swiss canton as it could be for him to visit the Russian Tsar. Most studies of early modern diplomacy look at a particular mission or negotiation. This means that they often only look at one side of what was by its nature a bilateral relationship. Yet recent scholarship has outlined that polities learned the precepts of diplomacy through doing it. So we need more studies that compare both ends of the relationship, for instance, by looking at French missions to Spain and Spanish missions to France. Yet these remain rare. Another approach that opens up new avenues and deepens our appreciation of the mechanisms of diplomacy is to look at the dip diplomatic activity of all of the diplomats in a particular court. To date, there have been scarcely any court-centric studies of early modern diplomatic culture. Catherine Fletcher, however, has recently traced the development of resident diplomacy in Rome between the mid-15th century and the late 1520s. Focusing on the behaviour and treatment of diplomats at one court has allowed her to examine how specific aspects of diplomatic practice, such as the rituals used in audiences in the Vatican, developed over time. So taking a court-centric approach to diplomacy can help us to answer some important questions, such as how did diplomats learn the rules of diplomatic practice from one another, and how did they learn about the practices that they encountered at the host court? How did their enacting of their own cultural norms influence the foreign political culture into which they were sent? And what impact did this have on the exchange of ideas, art, and material items? And in turn, what did that exchange have? What impact did that exchange have on the development of diplomatic cultures? Were individual courts distinctive in their diplomatic practices? And if so, how? And how did practices in a particular centre change over time and why? It is clear that if we are to truly understand how diplomatic cultures worked, we need to collaborate with, with one another in order to be able to compare how diplomatic practices at particular courts 
engaged with and refined cultural exchanges, how diplomats learned the rules of, particular, of a particular court at which they were based, and how they shared the knowledge of the particular political cultures they encountered elsewhere. The projects that these podcasts are linked to seeks to undertake just such a collaboration. The Ottoman court is a unique case study for examining the interaction of diplomatic cultures in a particular place. Constantinople was an important node that connected various different global networks. The size and composition of the Ottoman Empire made the capital an important site of diplomacy from various different vassal states. And the Sultan received embassies from African, Asian and European rulers on a regular basis. By 1600, many of the European diplomats resided in Constantinople on an ongoing basis, whereas the African and Asian diplomats continued to be sent on specific, temporarily limited missions to discuss a specific issue or perform a specific task. Each of the other podcasts in this series examines a different aspect of diplomacy at the Ottoman court in the 16th century. Max Hudson looks at everyday ceremonial and the use of space as viewed by Venetian diplomats posted to Constantinople. Analia Stoyanova looks at cooperation between the Spanish and Viennese Habsburg diplomatic corps at the Ottoman court. And Talitha Shepherds discusses Kirk van Elst, a Dutch artist who produced images of diplomatic ceremonial at the Ottoman court. I look at Europeans and how they learned about non-European embassies in Constantinople in the late 16th and 17th century, and also examine Constantinople in comparative context by examining the experiences of a Moroccan ambassador and an English diplomat who was posted to both the Ottoman and the Mughal courts. <laughs>